0: Hi, I'm Jarrett Murphy, and coming up on 112BK, a chat with Salon columnist Amanda Mockot on the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and what Chuck Schumer is up to.
1: It's clear from how startled the Republicans were this morning that they did not expect the Democrats to start releasing these emails.
0: And then another local politician trying to fend off a challenge from the left in the upcoming primary.
2: So, if you're talking about progressive, I'm just as progressive as Liz Kuga, Adriano Espayat, or any other member of the state senate.
0: Thanks for tuning in. In a moment, we're going to be joined in the studio by state senator for the 18th district in Northern Brooklyn, Martin DeLon, another Democratic incumbent trying to fend off a challenge from the left. But first, we wanted to get some thoughts on the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court nomination hearings. Senate Minority Leader and occasional Brooklyn resident Chuck Schumer has been getting some heat from progressives for not doing more to derail the nomination. And Friday may be his last chance, because that's when the hearings are supposed to end. Our friend Amanda Marcotte, Salon columnist, has been writing about the hearings, and she joins us by phone. Hi, Amanda. How's it going? Good. Thanks so much for joining us. Let's take a step back. The hearings are an ongoing story Let's talk about the stakes. Many people are saying Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court signals the end of Roe v. Wade, but then Lisa Blatt, a self-described liberal feminist lawyer, gave a glowing endorsement of him at the hearings. What do you think the stakes are?
1: I mean, I think that we can't trust lawyers that believe they're going to have business in front of the Supreme Court. They have every interest in flattering the sensibilities of the justices and you know, I think there was something very self-serving in her testimony.
0: Because uh, because, Blatt might be one of those lawyers who has business before the court.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's the game that lawyers play with justices. So we can really just overlook that kind of testimony. I think we can instead look to Kavanaugh's record as a stalwart Republican. I think we can look to the email that was leaked today showing that he's said that Roe versus Wade is precedent that could be overturned in the Supreme Court. I think we can look to the fact that Donald Trump's promised openly that he would only appoint quote unquote pro-life judges to overturn Roe versus Wade. I think it's kind of a bit of kabuki to pretend that Kavanaugh's there for any other purpose but to rule as a solid Republican down the line.
0: And other than Roe v. Wade, what are some of the other jurisprudential issues that are coming up? I know presidential power has been a big theme. What, what other kind of specific issues have been brought up at the hearings?
1: Well, there's a lot of concern right now about voting rights. Cory Booker went after Kavanaugh really hard last night on some previous rulings he had made in these cases. You know, Booker's concern is really that... With the basically the Supreme Court overturning parts of the Voting Rights Act, we're going to be seeing a lot more cases, and I think he's right, coming forward where states are trying to pass what's the equivalent of modern-day poll taxes, or they're shutting down polling booths, or they're passing ID laws that functionally, all these things that functionally work to keep minority voters from the polls. And the Supreme Court is probably going to be dealing with a number of those cases. And Kavanaugh presented himself during the hearings as somebody who is racially aware, who is pro-equality. And again, these leaked emails that the New York Times published today and that Booker and Senator here now have been publishing on Twitter suggest a very different picture of Kavanaugh's views on these issues.
0: The the idea of the documents, the leaked documents you mentioned coming up today, and obviously documents have been part of the discussion around this nomination for a while, including whether or not Congress has seen documents that it typically would see about a nominee. Can you walk us through that? Is Republicans correct that that's merely a Democratic talking point?
1: No, the Democrats are 100 percent correct, and I think that the documents that have been leaked uh, show this. I don't know the exact numbers, but the fact of the matter is that Kavanaugh has an extensive public record because he's been a public servant for a long time. He worked in the Bush administration. He has just an unbelievable number of documents that could be made publicly available. Most are not. Most aren't even being released to the Senate Judiciary Committee. And many of the ones that are are being marked confidential so that the public can't see them. And the people on the Judiciary Committee can't talk about them publicly so you know a lot of what's going on now is the democrats are revolting against that and releasing documents that they said were were rated as confidential that shouldn't have been
0: what do you think they're hiding i mean the republicans have the votes to to basically pass this nomination anyway right so what do you think
1: they're trying to conceal that's a really good question um i don't have any sense of exactly the extent of it um you know, the, the New York Times piece today, the sort of headline email of Kavanaugh's that they released was one in which he said that Roe versus Wade could be overturned by the Supreme Court. This is a big deal because throughout the hearings, whenever he's asked about abortion rights, instead of really committing to a position or being clear about what his point of view is, he talks at length until the senators get bored uh, about precedent, the importance of precedent, how much he loves precedent. He just uses that word a lot. And he uses that to sort of bamboozle people into thinking that he will, in fact, uphold precedent, just because he talks a lot about precedent. You'll know he very rarely, he doesn't really commit to doing that. And, and now there's an email out there that shows that he actually does not think that precedent is bound. He's, he's bound by the precedent if he's on the Supreme Court. So I and think that— I
0: just want to ask about uh, Chuck Schumer. Uh, he's under fire for not doing enough to derail this nomination. What do you think he is doing, and why do you think he's uh, you know, taking, taking the tack that he's taken on this?
1: Part of the problem here is that a lot of us don't necessarily know what Chuck Schumer is up to. It's clear from how startled the Republicans were this morning that they did not expect the Democrats to start releasing these emails. Schumer's been playing his cards close to the chest. I am I suspect that this was the strategy from the beginning, was to make a big deal out of Republicans not releasing documents, to spend two days making a stink over it, and then you know, once the Republicans got comfortable, then to start releasing documents. I don't know if that's going to be an effective strategy. I don't know that there is an effective strategy on the table. But, uh, you know, I, I think that that is clearly a strategy, and it's one that Schumer is almost no doubt part of and just didn't tell people beforehand because, you know, he didn't want to give the game away.
0: We only have a few seconds left, so let's stay on that point for a second. The question of strategy and what could be gained by it. Is there a victory possible or a, a, a half victory possible for Democrats short of blocking the nomination? Could they have another goal here?
1: Obviously, they want to block the nomination, and they're hoping that Susan Collins from Maine will vote no and that they can kind of pressure her into it. But I think outside of that, what they want to do is, is create a cloud of illegitimacy around Kavanaugh, especially if President Trump has cases in front of the Supreme Court shielding them from subpoenas, shielding them from investigations, shielding them from indictment, all sorts of things like that. You know, I don't know if they can effectively use that, but they are wise, I think, to get all their ducks in a row and make sure that if an opportunity does arise to sort of turn the heat up, that that they've got everything in place to do that. Just because you don't see every opportunity that could possibly come up in the future doesn't mean that it's unwise to be prepared for the possibility that such opportunities come, if that makes any sense.
0: Amanda Marcotte, columnist for Salon, thanks for joining us, and please keep following the hearings. Thank you so much. Up next, State Senator Martin Delon. The primary election is less than a week away, and Brooklyn is all over it. A Brooklyn council member is running for lieutenant governor. Another Brooklynite and city official, Tish James, is a leading candidate for attorney general. And Brooklyn will be the scene of several of the day's most closely watched state senate primaries, one involving the 18th district, which stretches from Greenpoint to Williamsburg through to Bushwick and into Cypress Hills. There, nine-term incumbent Martin Malave Delan faces a challenge from fellow Democrat Julia Salazar. We had Ms. Salazar on the show back in June, and today we welcome the incumbent. Thanks for being on, 112BK, Senator. Thank you for having me. So in a nutshell,
2: what is this race about? Well, I'm running for re-election just to continue the work that I have done in affordable housing, working with senior citizens, transportation issues. As you know, I'm the ranking member there. So I'm looking forward to continue these issues from a different perspective, and that is for the Democratic Senate and working in the majority and working with the community that I have known my entire life and working with the people that have lived there forever and looking forward to working with the new people moving in, in the district. Let's talk about that. You've represented this district since, well, you were elected in
0: 2002, took office in 2003.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
0: an area, I mean, New York has changed a lot over that time, but but those neighborhoods in particular are kind of ground zero for gentrification, huge changes. How have you kept up with those changes? How can you relate to some of the new, I think you and I would both call them hipper people uh, living in those areas? Well, I
2: call them millennials for the lack of a better word. but you know, when we when I first got elected, I I was first the city councilman for ten years, and we had about eighteen hundred vacant lots in in, in Bushwick alone, not to speak of Williamsburg and Cypress Hills, East New York. And I think that working together with other elected officials, we were able to bring in affordable housing from the state and federal government, and, and uh, some from the city. And the intention there was to help those people that have lived forever in Bushwick, so they can move in. However, you know, other people move in and we're okay with that uh, because it's only 50% preferential for those that live in the community. And I look at it that there has been a renaissance of Brooklyn, Bushwick, Williamsburg, and they're welcome in the community and we would love to have them as part of the community where we could all work together. I think they have been accepted. Uh, there's never been any issues whatsoever in the community So I look forward to working with everyone in my Senate district, and I expect that I will be back in January. So if you're... Career were to end today,
0: and I know you're planning for it not to, but let's say someone were looking back now on Martin Delon's career in Albany. Mm-hmm. What are the accomplishments you would point to?
2: Well, uh, accomplishments, I, I like I said, the rebuilding of Bushwick and those vacant lots. Also, when I did serve two years in the majority, I was the chairman of the Transportation Committee. I was successful in getting uh, Leandra's Law passed. Leandra's Law is a law where an individual who's intoxicated while driving with a child under 16 years old commits a felony and they will do jail time Um, and there have been many accomplishments within the Senate that I'm proud of and the most is that we worked so hard to bring services to seniors senior housing and the accomplishment of the Renaissance of our community Now, you mentioned uh, earlier that your service to the public goes back
0: to your time in the city council. Yes. And some of your critics over the years have pointed to one particular vote during your council career, Mm -hmm. that to empower the state legislature to make some of the changes made in in the late 90s to um, rent stabilization laws, including vacancy decontrol, that's blamed for the loss of tens of thousands of units. Uh, Is that a
2: vote you regret? Do you say that we voted to empower the state?
0: It was, a, it was a vote that basically permitted the changes to restabilization. No, that's, that's incorrect okay. because
2: the city council in the city of New York is a child of the state. So the vote that you're really talking about is a 1994 vote, which they uh, talk about in every single election, and they bring it up as an issue. At the time, I was a city councilman representing virtually a, a different demographics or in terms of housing stock, which was mostly one and two family homes. And the issue, as it was presented to us in the city council, had to do with luxury decontrol and Manhattan-based at the time. So that's how the vote was presented. That's why 28 city council members voted for it. Had I had a crystal ball and see what was going to happen and that this was not only going to affect Manhattan, I would have voted against it. But the way it was, at the time, Bushwick, Cypress Hills was paying $200, $400 a month rent. They were talking about $2,500. You had individuals that were making $450,000 a year and paying $69 a month in Manhattan. So you had rent protection protecting the rich. That's the way it was packaged. That's the way it was presented to us. And that's why I voted yes
0: since then in your many campaigns you've uh, accepted money from a lot of different people obviously mm-hmm. fundraising is part of the job when you're yeah. in politics but including the rsa pack which is rent stabilization that's the uh, the property owner lobby in the city uh, the real estate board of new york which is developers people have raised questions about taking that money and, and whether in fact you are now on the side of tenants because of that what's your reaction to that well criticism? um
2: The ones that always raise the questions are the opponents that I've had in the last five primaries and and my current opponent. But if you look at my record in the state senate, you will see that my record matches those of Liz Kruger and the former state senator, now Congressman Adriano Espaillat. He was the ranker on housing and Liz has been very good on housing issues, and my record in the Senate mirrors their record. So if you're talking about progressive, I'm just as progressive as Liz Kruger, Adriano Espionet, or any other member of the state Senate. My record, strengthening rent protection in the Senate, is impeccable like theirs. So if someone wants to send me money, uh, they can, but it's not going to affect me protecting my constituents.
0: Stay in that point for a second because it's an interesting one. This comes up in virtually every campaign, right? Who donates to whom? You probably wouldn't take money from anybody, right? If the National Rifle Association wanted to give you money, if the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan—not that they're equivalent to property owners—if
2: Al Qaeda wanted to give you money, you would probably send it back. No, I will. You know, I will not take money from from those uh, white supremacist groups, the National Rifle Association. I will not take money from them. However, you know, my opponent in this race has raised a lot of money. of her money comes from outside the 18th Senate District. 70% of the money comes from outside of the state of New York. Most of her money comes from a national group who I feel is really my opponent and not my current opponent. I'm running against a national organization known as the DSA or Democratic Socialists of America. And 70% of the money comes from outside of the state of New York.
0: Let's talk about your opponent. There have been a lot of stories over the course of the campaign, and especially in recent days, about her background and how she has presented it. Do you feel it's raising legitimate questions about her biography, her honesty? Is that something you
2: think voters should consider as they go to the polls? Well, you know, I, I personally have not made any comments uh, about these issues, but I think what's coming up has you know legs of its own. But I think that there is a concern about your integrity and the changing stories and whether there are lies. And I think that the community needs to look at that. The one important thing that I always say is your word, is your bond. And when you say something, it has to be the truth when you're dealing and representing the public. So I think that I have a very intelligent community. I think that they're aware that there's a primary, and they're well aware of what's going on in the media. So this primary is a
0: primary election. There'll be a general election in November. Whoever Mm -hmm. wins the primary may face other opposition there. And obviously, it's just one of many contests. You have the gubernatorial race, the attorney general race, the race for lieutenant governor. Have you made endorsements or alliances in any of those statewide contests?
2: We have cross-endorsed Tis James. We have cross-endorsed. With respect to the governor, there has been no formal cross-endorsements, although I do support the governor. And I have spoken to the Lieutenant Governor Hoko, and I have endorsed her.
0: So let's say that Cuomo wins, as seems likely, is re-elected in November, and the state Senate, your return to the state Senate, maybe with a slim Democratic majority. Realistically, what can voters hope to see change? What will get done if that is the case, given the fact that Many years, we seem to be having the same conversations, but the same policy issues in New York State. Is there a reasonable expectation for
2: change? Well, I think that there are many issues that have been left undone in the past. Um, There's the uh, women's rights issue, which has 10 different components to it. And advocates of women have talked about not piecemealing it and passing it as a package. I think that deserves priority. The dream act that was presented in the state senate and and failed in one vote i think needs to be passed we need to be also talking about dealing with the issue of restructuring repairing nitro because the conditions as we have found out from the press are are horrible Uh, we need to continue repairing our infrastructure in in the state of New York. Once I'm reelected and we have a majority, I will serve as the chair of the transportation committee. And I have worked many years in making sure there's at least $25 billion for five-year capital plan. I think that you need someone who's experienced and, and who can hit the ground running in the majority in Albany. And I expect that that's what will happen when we return in January.
0: In many of the races this year for the State Senate, including one here in Brooklyn, one of the themes is the Independent Democratic Conference, which we want to make clear you never joined. That is correct. um, But there are eight people who did, including several in the city. How do you feel about your colleagues who joined the IDC? Were you angry at them? Do you forgive them? Do you want to see
2: them reelected? I was very angry uh, at my colleagues when they joined the IDC at one point. Uh, so much anger that I, I, I was the only Democrat in the Democratic conference that called for their disenrollment from the Democratic Party, and I urged county leaders where they had such members that they start those proceedings. That never happened. They went, I believe, eight years in that role with the IDC, um, but now they're back. I'm happy that they're back and that it looks that we can work together in the future. In terms of them coming back, I expect that that's what's going to happen, and I would continue working with them. Do you want them to be reelected? Well, I mean, the people will make that choice. I want to get reelected, and that's my concentration. But if they're all back, I want them— to continue staying with the Democratic conference. And if you I always felt that if you're elected on the Democratic line, and that's the only way you win in November, you cannot deceive and disenfranchise the public who elected you. So I expect that they will work with the uh, conference. I expect that Andrea Stewart-Cousins will be our leader come January, and I look forward to working with all Democrats. And I urge any other Democrat that's out there lingering to come home. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we have time for just one more question. I'm
0: curious, this theme throughout this election year has been about change, this wave of change affecting mainly the Democratic Party. We saw elections in June and and more recently just this week in Massachusetts. What do you think about that? I mean, change would not see you reelected. But is there some legitimacy to this idea that we eventually will need some new faces to represent the party? Well, I think that in my
2: district, first of all, you know, they talk about the momentum of the 14th Congressional District and flowing into the 18th. But I'm going to say that the domino effect will stop here because, unlike in those other districts where we've had change, I've had a primary in the last five, six cycles. I've been engaged in my community. My community uh, constituents know and expect that there will be at a, a primary every two years. Where in those other cases, these incumbents have, I believe, never had a primary and their voters were accustomed to voting for them in November. My voters are accustomed to voting me in the primary in September and also in November, and I expect that that's what will happen.
0: Senator Martin Maleve Delon, incumbent and Democrat for re-election in the 18th district on September 13th, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you
2: for having me, it was a pleasure.
0: And now some news in collaboration with Brooklyner. Cynthia Nixon's got a new slogan and ad surrounding the MTA. She vows that she'll tax the rich to modernize the signals, upgrade the fleet of subway cars, and make the rapidly deteriorating mass transit system functional. The ad ends with a simple statement. The difference between me and Andrew Cuomo is pretty simple. He's the one who broke the subway. I'm the one who's going to fix it. Didn't know there were 400 available acres anywhere in Brooklyn? There are, and they're being turned into a park dedicated to America's first black congresswoman, Brooklynite Shirley Chisholm. Due to open in 2019 in Jamaica Bay, it will be the city's largest state park. In late summer, many people are fed up with hearing the incessant jingle of ice cream trucks. Check out Brookliner for which neighborhoods log the most 311 Mr. Softy noise complaints to say nothing of the complaints of children disappointed yet again in their purchase of a snow cone. Lots to do this weekend in Brooklyn, like the Gowanus Block Party on Saturday at 7th Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenues, with lots of things for the kids, including an angry bird catapult, giant plinko, and life-size rock'em-sock'em robots. For other listings and more on these stories, check out Brooklyner at bklyner.com. And then we have this. Last week, Jarrett Allen of the Brooklyn Nets teamed up with local organizations, including Children of Promise, to provide free back-to-school haircuts for underprivileged neighborhood kids. Producer Fred Brown and cameraman Antonio M. got a look and a listen.
1: Uh, what's up? Welcome. What's up Allen. How's it going? My name's Joshua. Joshua? What's up? Are
2: you a or a point guard?
1: I'm not a He's point a guard. Center. I'm, a center. A sen- I'm a sinner. I'm like, I'm almost seven feet tall. I'm not a slasher. <laughs> I'm Jared Allen with the Brooklyn Nets. So right now we're here in Lovell's Barbershop in downtown Brooklyn, and we're here giving haircuts to the kids. This event means a lot to me. I grew up learning to give back. So whatever you had, you give a percentage back. So this is almost, it's part of my percentage that I want to give back
2: to the community. In our communities,
0: um, the barbershop is like a hub. It's almost like you can find out local politics and you can find out international politics and we just thought it would be in their best
2: interest to come to a place that looks familiar, um, having haircuts by people that look like them, and um, just let them know, because one of, our, one of the things that we like to do at Children of Promise, we want our children to be safe, welcome, and known. And we know because of their reality and the things that they might be worried about, um, you know, presentation and looking good is 90% of the matter. So if they look good, then they're gonna feel good. And vice versa.
1: Zach, what's up? Zach? I'm Jared. <laughs> you coming to get your haircut today? Yeah. You gotta cut the afro though. Yeah. <laughs> for the kids to take away from the experience, they're on a hard journey. You know, some of them can't afford the haircut, some of them can't, they can't have it every year. So I'm trying to give back to them to show them that we're he, they're not alone on the journey, that they have somebody else looking out for them. So I'm just trying to show that there's a helping hand out there. I'm Jared. Your name
0: that's the show for today i'll be back next week with more primary candidate interviews including jesse hamilton and Zellner myrie and ashley's conversation with fran lebowitz hope you can join us 112BK is hosted by Ashley C. Ford, but she's off getting married, so right now it's hosted by me, Jarrett Murphy. It's written and produced by Ross Tuttle, and also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Ariana Rosas, Emily Boghossian, and Naeem Van. It's directed by Clinton Filson Jr., and recorded by Eric Haugaseg and Antonio M. Rosario, edited by Mira Rahim, and executive produced by Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leith, and Sasha Mathias.